Well, I want to just say how pleased I am to see so many of you here Sunday morning. Um, I'm very thankful. <clears throat> it tells me that somebody's hungry. And it also tells me there's a great famine in the land. <clears throat> By God's grace, we'll see if we can't water the fields. <clears throat> Y'all have your Bibles? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we once again thank you. We come to you this morning, dear Lord, to ask that your Holy Spirit will move upon us in a mighty way. We're not content, Lord, with a glass of water. Lord, we want to be baptized. Help us, dear God, we pray. Lord, where would we go without you? What would we do? And so we ask this morning, dear Lord, that you will answer all our prayers. Forgive us of our sins. We pray that you'll give us the mind of Christ. And Lord, help us to have a heart that will be willing to follow the Lord. And I ask also, Lord, that you will be with me. Help me, dear Father, I ask that I will preach the word of God in such a way that hearts will be moved. Now bless us, Lord, we ask, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John. <clears throat> John chapter 17. <clears throat> this is one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. <clears throat> we know it as the prayer of unity. Now, I'm not have time today to go through the whole chapter, but I want to focus on some particular points. And I want you to notice with me here, starting <clears throat> in verse 20. John 17, verse 20. Jesus said, Need to pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, let's stop here. Let's take a look at this. Jesus is praying for his disciples. Not only the disciples in his day, but who else? He said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which, notice the language, shall believe. That's future tense. That means all the disciples of God who would come after the apostles. All the way down to the close of human probation. That means Jesus was praying for you. You see, this isn't just a prayer, it's a prophecy. This isn't only a request that Jesus is making in behalf of the church to God. This is a prophecy of what will take place in the church. Inevitably, this prophecy, this prayer will be fulfilled. It will be answered. He goes on to say, 
what it is that he's praying for. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Now, I want you to notice this concept of unity, how important it is. I want you to look at the last part of verse 21. That, or the reason why. Why is unity so important? Why is it so critical? He says, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The vast majority of the world does not believe that God has sent Jesus into this world to save them. Now, what does that indicate? It indicates that the fact, clearly, the church is not what? We're not one. Look, if the church were one, why would Jesus pray that they be one? The fact that they are not one is why Jesus gave the prayer. And he's not only praying for us, but he obviously in the context, we know he's praying for the disciples. We know that they were arguing amongst one another. Who's the greatest? Who will sit at the right hand? I mean, we had two disciples. Their own mother came petitioning Jesus. Backbiting. And yet they were disciples. By the way, the partial fulfillment of this prayer was fulfilled where? Do you know where this was fulfilled? That's right on Pentecost. That's exactly right. Because it says they came together in one accord. But the fact that it was qualified in the latter part of verse 20, not only for them in terms of the apostles, but he prayed for us as well, clearly indicates what? That Jesus in prophetic vision saw what? The condition of the church at the end of time. And what was the condition according to Jesus? We're not unified. We're not unified. Unity is an interesting thing. We hear often about it in the Adventist church. We hear it about it in evangelical Christianity. Now, evangelical Christianity propagates a concept known as the ecumenical movement, their version of unity. And in some cases, in certain circles within the Adventist church, we've adopted that same philosophy. Now, I want you to go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I made reference to Ephesians 4, I think on Friday night, if my memory is right, where I told you that 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4 are known as spiritual gifts chapters. Now, that's all the three chapters talk about the spiritual gifts. But Ephesians 4 is also the unity chapter. And I want you to look at what it says about unity in Ephesians 4. Unity, in terms of the way the Bible describes it, is broken up into two categories. Two parts. Notice with me here in Ephesians 4... There in uh, verse 3. 
endeavoring to keep the unity of the what? Unity of the Spirit. I underscore that. Unity of the Spirit. Now go over to verse 13. Speaking of the church, he says, Till we all come in the unity of the, of the faith. Underscore that. So unity is broken into two parts. Unity of the Spirit and then unity of the faith. Now, there's no doubt they have a relationship to each other, no doubt whatsoever. Just as justification and sanctification go together. Yet, they are also different. I want to focus on unity of the faith at this time. Jesus prayed that His people would be one. That they would come together. That they would be in harmony. Not only unity of the Spirit, but unity of the faith. This is very clear. When we speak of the unity of the faith, we have to ask ourselves a question. What is the predicating factor that determines biblical unity? In this particular case, we're dealing with unity of the faith. Now, no doubt that this principle will also apply to unity of the Spirit, but we'll talk about that maybe another time. You always have to reduce an argument down to its lowest common denominator. In other words, what's the very premise of the argument? What's the point that the individual is trying to make? So in this particular case, we want to come to the lowest common denominator in regard to the concept of unity, unity of the faith. So how do we determine the true concept, the biblical concept of unity of the faith? What's it based on? Again, we can look at various methods or means in which have been proposed. But I want to say something to you now. As Seventh-day Adventists, We should always demand whatever position we hold that that position be built on a thus saith the Lord. And if there is no thus saith the Lord, I don't care how sophisticated uh, the argument may appear to be. I don't care how many degrees an individual may possess. I don't care how long they've been in the church. I don't care how many sermons they preach. I don't care how many souls they've led to Jesus. There is no scripture as the foundation to establish a particular doctrine or truth. Then you don't have the truth. The Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of what? Does sincerity make a particular doctrine truth or truthful? No, sincerity does not. Right now, look, there are literally millions, uh, tens and tens of millions of people, it may be the billions, who believe that Sunday is the right day to go to church. And they're sincere, just as sincere as you are about Sabbath keeping. Now, they're just as, some of them are just as sincere, just as honest, just as determined, just as true-hearted as you. 
but their sincerity doesn't sanctify Sunday. So it's possible for someone to be sincere, earnestly sincere, genuinely sincere, and yet be wholly wrong. Isn't that true? Yes, that is true. So let's go back to John 17. John 17. So what is then the foundation, the very premise upon which we understand the concept of unity of the faith? What's it built on? Well, let's look here in John 17, verse 17. Notice what Jesus said. He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So according to the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the basis of true unity? It's truth. You know, one day, when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist, I was so naive. I, I was under the assumption that every Christian pretty much believed the same. I know that sounds kind of strange, but I don't know why, but I just assumed that you know, if you're a Christian, whatever your profession, your faith may be, you would rejoice in the same truth that I had discovered or found. So I had a friend of mine that I used to work with. He was of the Baptist persuasion. And um, I was sharing with him about the Ten Commandments. And uh, at the place where we worked, his older brother worked there as well. Now, his older brother is what we might consider a real staunch, hardcore Baptist believer. And uh, so one day I came in with a paper, a piece of paper, all Bible verses on the Sabbath that had been given to me during the crusade. I was just excited. I thought, wow, this is a pretty interesting revelation. Oh, man, this is, so I just was sharing. His name was Bill. I said, hey, Bill, look at this, man. This is incredible, right? I was just sharing, <laughs> not realizing what was about to happen to me. <clears throat> so just as I'm sharing this with Bill, his brother comes along. And his brother looks at that paper, grabs it, you know, roughly, and he's he said, ha! And he threw the paper at me and said, this is one-sided. And, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was shocked. I, I was like, wow. I'm thinking to myself, this, man, I can't imagine someone responding in such a way. I thought they'd be happy like me. So... I didn't know what to say, but you know, I got angry. I didn't say anything, I, 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 but you know, I just got angry because I, I couldn't figure, what, why would they get so mad, you know? And I got angry because I didn't have an answer. So I was brooding over this for a couple of weeks. One day, I think I happened to go to a prayer meeting. 
And uh, I was sitting there thinking. I couldn't get this, this out of my head, you see. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I, it just wouldn't leave me. It was plaguing me all day long, every day. This is one-sided. This is one-sided. And then it dawned on me as I was sitting in the church, Bill's brother was right. He was absolutely correct. Of course it's one-sided. The truth only has one side. It's error that's got many sides. There are those today who simply want to suggest to us, well, you can believe in this, you can believe in that, you can believe in this, you can have that, like a little smorgasbord. As long as we, you know, maybe agree on some fundamentals and kind of Love one another. Why? We've got unity. You see, the problem today is among the vast majority of those who preach unity, it's not unity that they really want, it's uniformity. And there's a vast difference between uniformity and unity. Look, I don't want to be you. I don't want to be like you. I don't want to dress like you. I don't want to act like you. I don't want to walk or talk like you. You know what? I want to be me. God made me unique. He made me different. He made me who I am. I want to be me. I don't want to be you. See, I want to be who I am, who God made me to be. See, I'm not interested in uni uniformity. I am interested in unity, but not uniformity. You know, we're not a processing plant where, you know, you come off the assembly line, everybody looks the same. You know, like the Model T Ford, it was all one color, all one model, that was it. You only got one model, one color. I don't know about you, but not that I mind black, but I wouldn't mind seeing red and yellow, green, blue. What a dull world it would be if all we had was one flower that was only one color. Imagine one bird and it was just all one color. One fish in the ocean and all he was was one color. God does not believe in uniformity, but he does believe in unity. You should be who you are. You should be the person that God made you. And not try to be something that you're not. Everybody spots a phony. Wonder if we can sometimes spot it in ourselves. Unity is predicated on the truth. And we must demand any time we hear people saying we must come together, we must unify. We must demand that that unity is based on a thus saith the Lord, on the word of the Lord, on the truth. And if it's not going to be based on the word of the Lord, then we should not participate in their efforts to unify. Because their efforts to unify is nothing more than the ecumenical movement for uniformity. And when you understand the ecumenical movement, they're not interested in unifying the people on the truth of God. They're really interested in unifying people based on falsehood and denying the truth. One day I was down in southern Virginia, over in the Roanoke area. No, excuse me, it was Lynchburg, Jer you know, Jerry Falwell's territory. I was down there uh, doing some book hunting and 
I don't know why I thought I'd find some, you know, Lynchburg, you know, University, Liberty University. It's a college, Christian college. I thought there should be some good Christian bookstores down there, old secondhand books. I'd find me some good literature. I guess I assumed too much. But I went down anyway, because I'd never been down there, and so I came into an old second-hand shop and really didn't have much, but these two gentlemen were sitting down talking. They were Christian men, and the two boys were sitting conversing back and forth. One was the proprietor. I guess the other was a close friend of his. And they were talking about unity, coming together with a creed, you know, and where we should unite. And... Um, and uh, on salvation or whatever the issues they were. And they said, well, we need to have a document that, that we need to come together in and uh, where we can harmonize and our understanding and so forth and so on. Well, I was listening with one ear, looking at the books at the other. Of course, uh, believe me, I wanted to jump in, but I, I figured I'm not going to say anything. Uh, not until he asked me, what do you think? And then I told him. <clears throat> I didn't get any more questions after that. A creed doesn't make us unified. This is our creed, the Holy Bible. 27 fundamentals doesn't mean we're united. Well, I think there's 28 now. Yeah, they, I guess they added as whenever they want to find something new. So, 28 fundamentals don't, doesn't mean we're unified. Unity is based on truth. Let me read to you some statements from the pen of inspiration. This is um, found in mind, character, and personality. Page 559. She says, <clears throat> Seventh-day Adventists are now to stand forth separate and distinct, a people denominated by the Lord as His own. Until we do this, He cannot be glorified in them. We have, I believe, a very difficult time for, I guess, various reasons. Standing out separate and distinct. We don't really want to be too peculiar to the world in the uniqueness of the truth that we hold. I think too often we're too apologetic about the truth that we possess. Frankly, I don't think we should apologize at all. Look, why should we apologize for preaching the truth? It ought to be the evangelical world that should be apologizing to us for preaching the error. Too many times in our crusades, we are too interested in watering down the message in order to appear as though we're loving, kind Christian people. We don't want to stand out as anti-Catholic. I had one gentleman of a particular conference, president conference of a particular conference, he said to me, 
He said, you know, I believe we ought not to preach the Antichrist. He said, because, see, for too long we've been anti-Catholic, you know, with an anti-Catholic mentality. And I said to him, I said, well, it may well be that there are those in the Adventist community who may well be anti-Catholic, but that doesn't mean the doctrine is anti-Catholic. Do you understand the difference? Look, it's the old saying, why do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? If the bathwater's bad, why don't you do yourself a Pull the baby out and then drain the water and put in some new. Why are you going to throw the baby out? So, we were talking and as we were going on and he then said, I don't believe we ought to preach the doctrine of the Antichrist until the crisis breaks and, and we're in the, you know, the, the, the thrust of the end time when it really has hit us, the perse- you know, persecution, Sunday law, all that. Then we preach it. Then the world will listen to us. That's like saying, I'm not going to call the people out of the house until the house is just about to be burnt into ashes. And when it's just about to be burnt to the ground, I'm going to call them out. And then they'll thank me for calling them out. It's too late! You see, the problem today is there are those who may understand or believe certain truths but their philosophy is wrong. Listen, if you think right, you act right. If you think wrong, you will act wrong. We ought to, there's another course I believe we ought to teach, and it is philosophy, but the true philosophy, Christian philosophy, the concept of getting your mind right. One day I was watching uh, basically two groups of people debate issues. <laughs> it's like going back and forth, back and forth. And uh, as I was listening to them, I was trying in my mind, what is the the point of the argument? You know, I always try to come down to that lowest common denominator. What's really the crux of the argument here? And I remember listening to them, and both of them, now this is is the way it worked out. Now, both of them believed in the uh, fallen nature of Jesus. Both of them believed in victory over sin. Both of them believed in perfection in Sister White in the 1844, the investigative judgment, and so forth and so on. Where the waters parted was on this one fundamental point. The one person believed that these truths were salvational and that it was of the utmost necessity to preach them uh, no matter what the consequences may be. The other person believed that it, they should not be preached if they're going to cause division. And so I thought about that. 
And I thought, now they both profess to believe the exact same thing. You go to them, you ask them, and I did. What's your views on the nature of Christ? What's your views on victory over sin? What's your views on perfection? What's your view on the atonement? And, and right down the line, they both tell you the same thing. Yet they were no more in harmony than would a Nazi be in harmony with a Jew. The problem was simply this. It was their philosophy in regard to the truth that they professed, professed that they held. Now I want you to see one philosophy, one philosophy came to the conclusion that these truths were so essential that they must be preached. No matter what the consequences may be. In other words, the philosophy was such that the doctrines were upheld. The philosophy was such that the doctrines were grounded firmly and held tight. The other philosophy was such that it undermined the truth. Friends, if you believe in terms of your philosophy in regard to the truth, even though you may possess the truth itself, that you won't preach it only when... Or, or, or if it causes division, and the only time you will ever preach it is when you have harmony, you will never preach it. It will never be preached. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I didn't come to this earth to give peace. I came to bring division. And I didn't write that, and I didn't say that. I'm telling you what the Lord Jesus Christ said. You have to understand something. Friends, today we live in a politically correct society. And by the way, I am not politically correct. So you, I am, I'm not a part of it. I don't want to be anything near it. I can't stand people who are politically correct. Because I'm going to tell you, understand. Study the philosophy of political correctness. What is the fundamental premise of political correctness? Now they wrap it in what? How do they wrap it in? They wrap it in a veneer of what? Being polite, kind and considerate, thoughtful and generous. That's how they wrap it. Friends, I could wrap a tarantula in a beautiful package, but I'm sorry, it's still a tarantula. Do you understand? It's not going to change the nature of that beast. So don't get hypnotized by the package. And don't allow them to intimidate you. What is the fundamental concept of political correctness? The political correctness concept is this, to silence your conscience for speaking what you believe to be right. Do you understand that political correctness is an enemy of religious liberty? It's an enemy of your First Amendment right to speak out your conscience? And so today, what we do, we're silence on homosexuality. Ooh, I don't want to be viewed as anti-homosexual. I don't want to, I want to be viewed as a loving Christian man. So we'll say nothing about homosexuality. We'll say nothing about certain other things. Maybe we'll say nothing about Antichrist because I don't want to appear to be anti-Catholic. You know, I want to be a loving brother in the community of Christ. 
And you see what's dominating my views on the Bible, my philosophy. You got to, I told you, you think wrong, you act wrong. Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. That's exactly right. We got to get our thinking straight. Once you get your thinking straight, then you can start to build your, your house. Your thinking is your foundation. Your philosophy is your foundation. It's just like what they do with the pen of inspiration, the spirit of prophecy. They undermine it. They won't come out and say blatantly, at least some of them, they won't come out blatantly and say, well, we don't believe in her. She's not inspired. So what do they do? They undermine it. They distort, or at least attempt to distort, your philosophy in regard to the writings. In other words, change the way you think. See, this is a master tool of the Jesuits. If you've ever studied the history of the Jesuits and their philosophy of education, they have a philosophical viewpoint on education. Very simple. And this is what, one of the things they actually teach. They teach this in the schools. They teach immediately. They attack your mind. That's the first thing they go for. They will say this. For example, they'll put up a piece of paper like this. And they say, what's the color? And of course you say, well, it's white. And they say, no, this is not white. No, this is not white. This is black. You say, but no, 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 uh, that's white. No, you don't understand. That's what you think you look at. No, this is black. What are they doing? What are they doing? Changing the way you think. In other words, they're programming you not to rely on common sense and rational thinking. Not to methodically analyze a particular problem, but rather they're programming you to think how they think, how they view things. If they change your philosophy, they change your mind, they change your actions. You see, the Jesuits don't need to make you a Jesuit to get you to become like a Jesuit. They just simply change the way you think. That's why they've infiltrated the school systems throughout the country. They've destroyed the educational system. That's why the youth of today, and that's why I'm very pleased to see so many here today, but that's why the youth of today has got the foggiest idea of how to analyze certain particular situations. They just aren't taught basic concepts of thinking, logic, philosophy. They're just not taught. In that same statement, Sister White goes on to say this. Truth and error cannot stand in co-partnership. Did you all get that? Truth and error cannot stand in co-partnership. Now some say, well, listen, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, you got 90% truth, you got a little bit of error, what's the harm? Let me ask you something, ladies, I brought this up before about uh, potential um, spouses, and applies to you gentlemen as well, but I mean, just think about it. Let me ask you this. 
There's a little adultery, okay? I mean, just a little. Come on now. What do you, look, suppose a man came up to, to his wife-to-be as they're walking down the aisle. He said, you know, say it's Sally and Bill. So Bill looks over to Sally and says, Sally, you know I love you. Well, I know you do, Bill. I know you do. Sally, I love you so much. I love you so much. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you 364 days of the year and only one day to Jane. That's how much I love you, Sally. You're going to still keep walking down the aisle? If you do, you deserve Bill. You follow what I'm saying? That one day is unacceptable to you, isn't it? What does it teach you? That it teaches you in the final, he really doesn't love you. He, he really doesn't care about you. He's not loyal to you. And really, if you want to take it down to what's really hardcore, he doesn't love you, he hates you. There's no such thing as harmonizing truth and error and coming up with truth. Truth can only stand with truth. Anytime you mix truth with error, I don't care what the ratio is. It doesn't matter what the ratio is. It could be 99.9 truth. And you have this just this one-tenth of a percent of whatever it may be. It doesn't matter. It's still error. It is still error. Don't fall under the fatal delusion of thinking that it's truth and that it will not affect you. Let me tell you this. If you think wrong, you, and I don't care how slightly you may think wrong, inevitably that wrong thinking will bring forth the fruits of the wrong thinking. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not even be three months from now, but eventually if you persevere and you persist in that era, that era is coming up. And I'll tell you something right now with the era. It may start off with one-tenth of a percent, but it doesn't finish off with one-tenth of a percent. It will engulf all of the truth. <clears throat> she goes on to say this, Let us now place ourselves where God has said that we should stand. We are to strive for unity. So we're to strive for unity. Isn't that something, a noble thing? We should come together, isn't that right? We should make an effort to unify, isn't that right? But on the truth. She says we are to strive for unity, but not on the low level of conformity to worldly policy and union with popular churches. Did you catch that? We are to strive for unity, but not upon popular policy or worldly policy and popular churches. I'm going to talk about worldly policy for a moment. Worldly policy. Well, we've got a consensus from among the brethren, and therefore we should harmonize with that consensus. I will only harmonize with the consensus from among the brethren, no matter who they are, where they are, no matter what they profess, if that what they harmonize or, or come up with is in harmony with the Word of God. Unity is not based on worldly policy. But we don't want to appear as though we're, we're anti-union, you know, anti-unity. 
Why is it that the enemy always reverses the situation and makes the righteous feel guilty for standing up for what's right? It's what, look, Ahab and Jezebel did it to, 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 to Elijah. Ahab's, oh, the one that troubles Israel. Here he is. Thank God Elijah had enough nerve and courage and said, no, wait a minute now. I'm not the one causing the problems. You are. And he told them why. He said, because you're forsaking God's commandments. I say by God's grace, we need to behave in a Christ-like way. We need to be kind. We need to be considerate. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be uh, Christians in, in every way. But listen to me. A Christian isn't a weak need, no backbone, wishy-washy, gutless individual. A Christian is an individual willing to stand up for what's right because it is right and because they love the truth and they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it means they're going to be criticized and if it means they're going to be cast out and, 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 and ridiculed and mocked and, and their reputation slung in through the mud, if it means being uh, uh, disfellowshipped or whatever the case may be, no matter how severe it may be, listen to me, then so be it. It's not that you want it to happen, but if that's the consequences for standing up for Jesus, then so be it. We need moral fortitude. We need moral courage. Sister White says we need our faces to be like flint into the fire. I want to make something very clear. Now, some of you know where I stand on these issues, but I'm going to make something very, very clear right now. I am in self-supporting work, but I have no loyalties to self-supporting work. Just like I have no loyalties to any other organization. By God's grace, I want my loyalty to be to the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be multitudes of people who will go to hell while they were in the church singing their hymns, but did not care for the Lord Jesus Christ. But no one, absolutely no one, will miss heaven who followed the Lord Jesus Christ implicitly. No one. Like the Jews of old, I believe we too have these false expectations and we've set up these false places of security. As though somehow, if, uh, if I'm associated with a certain group, or a certain committee, or a certain organization, or whatever it may be. Therefore, somehow that equates to me being spiritually safe. Somehow I'm kosher. The Jews had that problem throughout the Bible. Study the book of Jeremiah. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. They cried this out to Jeremiah. How can God destroy us? Look at the temple. It sits in the midst of us. It's God's sanctuary, they said. As though somehow that guaranteed them the preservation of their eternal welfare. 
So what did God do? To teach them a lesson. What did He do? He annihilated the temple. What was it to teach him? It was to teach him a, a very fundamental lesson. Jesus kept saying, you got to trust me. you got to look to me. The psalmist said, I will look, lift up my eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? What's the next verse? My help cometh from the, from the Lord. My help cometh from the Lord. Unity is based on truth. And even the popular churches of today, we want to be unified with the churches. It all started back in the 1950s. An effort to unify with the popular churches of the world. We were ashamed of ourselves. At least some of them in the church were ashamed of our peculiar truths. And they began to capitulate certain particular doctrines. And you know one of the first fundamental doctrines that was capitulated? How many of you know what was one of the major doctrines they capitulated in the 1950s? What was it? The nature of Christ. You go back into the old Bible readings for the home. Go back into the old, before 1950s. Go back into the old Bible readings for the home. And in our publication, and that's not the only one, would you go back in there? And it makes very clear where we stood. Very clear. Of course, after that, in 1956, they changed it. The Bible Reading for the Home doesn't say the same thing anymore on the nature of Christ. It radically alters the position. Unity of the faith. Well, Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 412. She says, We have a testing message to give, and I am instructed to say to our people, Unify, unify. But we are not to unify with those who are departing from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. With our hearts sweet and kind and true, we are to go forth and proclaim the message, giving no heed to those who lead us uh, lead away from the truth. Now, there will be those, even from among ourselves, who will go astray from the truth. But we are not to unify with them. Did you know that? We're not to unify with them. Why? We have no business to unify with them who are going astray from the faith. Because truth and error do not mix. You cannot have true unity. We are to unify with those who love the truth, that preach the truth, that obey the truth. Please, I don't want to hear. Well, Brother Ray, how can we know the truth? You cannot be, you cannot be that incapacitated in the process of your thinking that you can't even know what truth is. Because if you don't even know what truth is, then I don't know what to tell you. If you're so incapable of understanding the truth, I would highly suggest that you get serious about your Christian experience.
please do not suggest to me the idea that somehow truth is so complicated, it's so bewildering, that my mind just cannot comprehend the concept of truth. Now, a lot of your university students here, and some of you have graduated, so I would assume you're educated. I would hope and pray to God. I mean, you went to college... So I'd assume you'd have something going for you upstairs. Truth is not complicated. Is it challenging? Yes, it can be. Yes, it can stretch the mind, no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. It can stretch your mind. It'll challenge you, no doubt. But truth is not complicated to the point where you cannot understand it. And if you are being taught something, say, you know, Bible class, and if after that class you are so bewildered in regard to what was being said, either one, you weren't paying attention, or two, you weren't being told the truth. Truth has a certainty to it, a clarity. There is within each and every one of us, and I believe God has put it in us. Each and every one of us knows deep down inside what is right and what is wrong. Deep down inside. That's based on the book of Romans. There's a law in our members. There's a law in each and every one of us that knows the difference between right and wrong. And when you hear truth, If you're honest with yourself, you know deep down inside, that is the truth, this is right. I'm going to have to close up here. Go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 13. Now, clearly we know the church is not unified in the faith. That is obvious. Look, friends, look around us. Look at Southern California. I mean, it is a smorgasbord. Compounded with a cesspool. Every wind of doctrine is blowing in the church. And let me just say this. I mentioned to you before this idea of us versus them. See, I'm not into that. I don't buy into this. You know, they've got this mindset, you know, the self-supporting versus the coffers. I'm not into I don't believe in that. Now, there may be those who do believe in that, but I don't buy into that foolish nonsense. There are those among in the conference, and I mean from the highest level to the lowest, who are God-fearing, love the Lord, preach the truth, stand up for what's right. They are God's children. All right? They're beautiful people. I know some of the pastors and friends of mine in the work in the conference. Look, they're wonderful people. They're beautiful people. But there are also thieves, liars, and Judases. From the top, 
to the bottom. But the same is true of self-supporting work. There are good, decent, honest, God-fearing people who love the Lord. They just want to do God's will. They just want to... They don't want somebody up top of them lording over them. They say, no, you can't come over here and give a Bible study. We've not given you permission. They just want to go give a Bible study. They just want to go out and witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think that's extreme, you are sadly mistaken. One day I was visiting a friend of mine. I had been preaching in, 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 in England. And I was over there and, and the, it was a Thursday night. I preached that Thursday night, Friday morning I was flying home. I got a phone call Sunday morning from my friend who had the meeting in his house. Sabbath morning the pastor stood up in the church, in the pulpit, and said, no one is authorized in this church to give a Bible study without my permission. Now, I go back to what my two brothers were talking about. You see, in America, we ain't buying into that. I always say, you know, Americans are born with a gun in their hand. You know, you know I'm saying the metaphor, we're too independent. Don't tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. At least that's my mindset. I don't know about you, but you're not going to tell me what to do. That's not going to happen. You can say I'm a maverick. You can say whatever you want to call me. I don't care. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. Now, you can give me advice, give me counsel, you can correct me. Okay, fair enough, I'm willing to accept that. But you're not going to say to me, you can do this, you cannot do that. No, who made you God and Lord of my conscience? <clears throat> Ephesians 4, 13, 13, listen to this now. This is a prophecy... This is a prophecy. I want you to listen about the unity of the faith. We've got every kind of wind of doctrine blowing. But I'm going to tell you this right now. The prayer of Jesus and John said, it's going to come to pass. Praise the Lord. It will be fulfilled. God will have a unified people. A unified people. By the way, well, just a footnote. I want to, I've left out the bad part of the self-supporting work. <laughs> I just remembered this. I told you about the good people. I didn't tell you about the bad people. In self-supporting work, there are... They're, not, they're good people, there's no doubt about it, but there are also Judases and thieves and liars and whores. And I'm going to tell you this right now. In terms of doctrine, more of doctrinal apostasy comes from self-supporting work than the country. That's right. If, you haven't, if you're not open, then you don't know. I'm telling you, I travel the world. One day I was in Australia preaching in the self-supporting camp meeting. And I made, I said that self-supporting work is just as corrupt as the conference work. And boy, did I get a lot of boo-hoos and hisses and moans. And I, I didn't care. I don't, see, don't, I told them, I said, don't bother me what you think. I said, it's the truth. Look, sometimes truth is painful. Look, let's be honest. Come on, we, if you're not honest with yourself, how can you possibly resolve a problem? If you've got a dilemma in your house or, or, or in your life, whatever, the first thing, you know the first thing you got to do? The very first thing is you've got to be honest about the problem. I mean, how are you going to resolve it? If you're lying to yourself, you're never going to resolve it. Oh, you may modify the problem, but you're not resolving the problem. Isn't that true? So the first thing is you've got to be honest about yourself. Look, I told you, I have no loyalties. My loyalty is to God. My loyalty is to His church. 
You understand? And listen to me. So, but I'm trying to tell you that there are good people on both ends and there are bad people on both ends. I just want to find the good people. I'm not worried about the bad people because get out of my way. I just want to do the work of God. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Till we all come in the unity of faith. Underscore that. Till at a given point in time. Till at a given point. That means it's future tense. But when will that be? When will we actually come together in unity of the faith? When? Go to Isaiah. Isaiah 52. <clears throat> Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Speaking of the last days. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, and put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth, meaning from this time forth, there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Stop right here. Let's analyze this now. Put on thy beautiful garments. Awake, awake. What does that imply? First of all, awake, awake. What does that imply about the church? That's right there, asleep. The parable of the ten virgins. How many of them slept? All, the good and the bad, they all slept. So let's not get a holier-than-thou attitude. It may well be that you don't participate in the celebration church movement. It may well be you don't do other things. But don't sit there and pontificate and think, well, thank God, Lord, I'm not like them. No, you may not. But you may be a liar, a cheat, a thief. You may do other things that nobody knows about. And let me tell you this right now. Everybody's got a closet that nobody wants to open to anybody else. And you know it and I know it. So before we start casting stones and condemning, you better take a good look at yourself because you aren't so pretty as you like to think you are. Awake, awake. So the church is asleep. You see the condition here? We've got a sleeping church. Isn't that right? What do we have here? An awakening message. The midnight cry. Awake, awake. Get up. It's the loud cry. In other words, it's the, the Laodicean message. Get up. Get up. It's the straight testimony. That's what it does. Wakes you up. Yes, it's hard to take. Yes, it's strong. But sometimes you've got to take a strong dosage in order to get health. He says, put on thy beautiful garments. What does that imply? That the church is not clothed. What are the beautiful garments? Revelation 19, verse 8. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say the condition of the church is? They, are not, they haven't put on the garments of righteousness of Christ, have they? So awake, awake, and then put it on. It's an awakening message. Righteousness by faith. It's the three angels' message. It was what was preached in 1888. It's coming back again, except we're going to get the, the real version uh, that has been muddled in the water since 1888. Not that Jones and Wagg didn't preach the truth. They did. But I'm talking now how it's been muddled in the water since then. But it's coming back. He says this. From henceforth, from this time forward. From this time forward. From what time forward? From the time they awake and put on the righteousness of Christ. From that day forward, what will happen? The unclean, the uncircumcised will no longer come into the church. Who are they? It's a metaphor. Who's the unclean? Who's the uncircumcised? Who are they? Look, they're the, they're the unconverted. These are the, these, are the, these are the tares. Yes, the chaff in the church, absolutely. These are the people who are, we call, Sister White says they're baptized alive. 
Now, when will that be? There are three phases to the shaking. Three phases to the shaking. The first phase is what? Heresies. Sister White says, when all other means fail, God will allow heresies to come into the church to sift the church. Heresies are... And if we're, it's, we're beyond knee-deep. We're beyond waist-deep. I'm suffocating in apostasy and error. Do you understand? We've got... The winds are blowing. And it's not going to stop, we're told, until the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Did you know that? Yes, it will not stop. Now look, first phase is heresies. Now, you think God is going to allow heresies to go on unchecked? No, God loves His church. So what's He going to do? Under the unction of the Holy Spirit, what will He do? Here comes the second phase. What is it? What's the second phase of the shaking? That's right, it's the straight testimony. It is an answer to the apostasy. To awaken the people of God out of their lethargic condition. But when the second phase of the shaking commences, what will commence it? And this will engage the third phase. What will it? What will happen? Some will rise up against the straight testimony and this will begin a shaking. She's, this is persecution. That's your third phase of the shaking. Persecution starts off mild. Like I mentioned, you know, words, you can be persecuted with, you know, speak, condemning you or speaking ill of you or assassinating your character, whatever. That's a persecution, the form of persecution. But eventually it'll get physical to the point where, according to Revelation 13, 15 through 17, and then Revelation 20 and verse 4, they're going to behead us, put us to death. That's the ultimate form of persecution, putting someone to death. All right, so now look. From henceforth, the unclean will no longer come into the church, the unconverted, the lukewarm, the weak need. All right, they'll no longer come into the church. During the first phase, do we have terrors in the church? Well, who do you think is bringing the air? It's not the righteous. Second phase, the straight testimony. Do we have the tares still in the church? Yes. How about the third phase? Now, this is a trick question, so think, think about what it is. It's gradual. Remember, it's gradual. It's gradual. It starts off with mild form of persecution, then it ultimately ends in a physical of putting someone to death. Now, think of this right now. In the early stages of the third phase, are the, are the tares still in the church? Yes. When this is the separation, let me tell you this right now. When you threaten someone's life, you say, now, you're either going to be a seven-day Adventist, keep Sabbath, or we're just going to lop your head off. Then you're going to see who's who. Sister Wise says, today, today, you, we do not really know who's who. Because everything's predicated on profession. She says, it's like the stars hidden during the day. They're there, but you can't see them. But it's at the midnight they come out and they shine. Jesus like the evergreens. During the summer, all the trees are green. But it's in the middle of the winter, this cold blast of winter. And the only trees that are green are those that are evergreen. They can handle the pressure. Today, it's daylight in the church. But the darkness will come and then we will see who will shine and who will fade away. Many a star we've admired with brilliancy will then go out in darkness. It's during the third phase this will happen. Now, I don't have time to go through this whole prophecy, but go to verse 8. Now, watch this. Watch this. When God cleanses His church, He purifies His church. You see, what we have here is a transition from the church militant to the church triumphant. 
Now we got nothing but wheat. Look at the condition of the church now. Go to verse 8. Thy watchman, thy watchman shall lift up the voice and with the voice, underscore the next word, with the voice. What's that word? Repeat it again. Together. There's harmony. There's unity. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall, underscore this, they shall see eye to eye. That's when we will see eye to eye doctrinally. That's when we will come together in the unity of the faith. Right now we don't have the unity of the faith, but we got to strive for the unity of the faith. That's why I'm not apologetic for preaching the truth. That's why I'm not going to sit here and apologize to you for where I stand on the nature of Christ or victory over sin or the sanctuary of the spirit of prophecy. That's why I will be determined by God's grace to tell you the truth. You may not like me. You may not want me around here again. It doesn't matter to me. Don't you understand you didn't call me here? God did. And I will tell you the truth because God wants you to hear the truth. No, I'm not the best preacher. No, I'm not the most sophisticated. No, I don't have the best English in the, in the vocabulary. No, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, whatever it may be. I don't dress right for what... I... Listen to me. That's okay. But listen to me. One thing, I'll tell you this right now. One thing, you bring it right down. When it's been said and done, when I'm finished preaching, you know full well where I stand. You don't sit around and say, I wonder where Brother DeCarlo, where he stands on this issue. If you do, you were sleeping while I was preaching. The Seventh-day Adventist church is God's church. There is no other church. This is His bride. But we got to get ready. How many want to say with me, Lord, I want to be ready. I want to do all that I can to be ready on that great and glorious morning. You want that for you in your prayer? God bless you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, please keep us. Help us to recognize our great need of Thee. Now, Lord, we ask that You'll take possession of us again. And Lord, I know we've come before You many a times and asked for forgiveness and cleansing, but Lord, unless You work a mighty miracle on our behalf, Lord, what will we do? Where will we go? And so we come and we ask that You will take possession and bless each and every one here and every family that is represented. Bless your church, we pray in Jesus' name.